All right, now some of you may say, Dale, why did you do that, okay? Well, let me, how many of you met a stranger, someone you've never met before? You met a stranger? Okay, anyone else meet a stranger? How many of you met just a person you met before, but they're kind of strange looking? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, my wife raised her hand. Okay, yeah, the row from Colorado, they're the, they're the strange ones, but I'm just kidding. No, hey, listen, it's great to be together with you. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 today. We're continuing a series called The Storyteller, Lessons at the Feet of Jesus. This was Jesus Christ telling stories that have a meaning, that have a significance. They're called parables. They're, they're stories that are taken out of everyday real life. They may have actually happened. In fact, probably at some point did. But yet Jesus uh, tells these parabolic stories in order to teach a deeper lesson. And uh, we're in the middle of this section of Luke. And today we're going to look at one that is actually one of the most perhaps under, uh, misunderstood parables, but yet a parable that you're going to recognize as you look at the title even of the message. There is an outline provided that will help you. We always do that to help you follow along if you want to take a few notes. Today we're going to be looking at the parable that's called the Good Samaritan. Now I don't know about you, but I've grown up with this phrase my whole life, but yet often kind of wonder, where the heck did that come from? Where did this phrase, the Good Samaritan? I mean, I, when I grew up, there was a hospital near me called Good Sam or Good Samaritan hospital. There's usually one in just about every city. Uh, I noticed that if you turn on the news, it's very common if you listen to a news story, right? And all of a sudden they start reporting on some good deed. These are rare. They happen about once a month, okay? At least on the news. They happen more often, but the news talks about them about once a month. But you'll hear a story about, and, and they'll refer to the fact that, that the hero of the story was some good Samaritan that came along. You heard that in the news? Yeah. I've grown up hearing that phrase. Yet the question is, where did it come from? Where did it come from? It's actually a phrase that grows out of the story we're going to study today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at three questions. Number one, what's the real story behind this good Samaritan, behind this label? What's the real story? Number two, why did Jesus tell it? What's the significance of it? And then thirdly, of course, so what's it have to do with us? What's it have to do with us? And we're going to learn today that it's going to offer us wisdom for life. It's going to offer us wisdom that goes way beyond the exact scenario of this story. Just to give you a heads up, all right? Let's dive in to the story. Anytime you look at a parable, one of the things that our teaching team and Ryan has been emphasizing Matt last week is it's all about context these stories of Jesus weren't just spun out of nowhere they almost always are linked to the initial context the uh, the the immediate context of the story in other words it's the context it's what's going on that led to the telling of the story and if you don't understand the context you'll almost always misinterpret the parable okay so let's look at the context if you look back in chapter 10 of Luke, what's going on is some exciting things. The disciples were sent out early in the chapter. They actually do miracles in the name of Christ for the first time. Not just Jesus, but the disciples seem to be able to even tell demons what to do. And there's some miraculous things going on. And, and they come back and they give a heads-up report to Jesus. And they're so excited about, wow, Jesus, you should have seen what was happening. 
I mean, it's like even the, even the, the, the spirits had to obey us. And, and they're so excited about this miraculous little road trip they went on for ministry. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, you know, as cool as this is, Jesus says, don't get too excited about miracles. And then he says this, but get excited that your name is written in heaven. In other words, get excited. Much more important, get excited about the fact that your names are written in heaven. In other words, you're looking forward to eternal life. Wow. Now that's worth being excited over. Having just said this, Jesus makes this statement in verse 23. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which have seen the things you see. <clears throat> For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things that you hear and did not hear them. In other words, this is an incredible time. You are part of the kingdom of God. You're a part of the kingdom of God. And then you should be excited about that. And there was a lawyer listening in. Now, when you think lawyer, let me just define that. When it talks about a lawyer in Scripture, he's not talking about uh, the lawyers that go to court and argue your case, all right? It's talking about a, a religious leader who specializes. He's an expert of studying the Old Testament law. He understands all the fine details of the hundreds of commands of the Old Testament because the Jews were very committed to trying to live by the letter of the law. In fact, they took the law and they added to it all kinds of extra regulations and rules just to make sure that you didn't even get close to breaking the law. So they understood the law. And this guy is an expert in the Jewish law. And then it gives us, as we move into the parable itself in verse 25, we see the final setup or the context. Here we go. Pick it up now. Verse 25, chapter 10. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've just been talking about being excited that your name is written in heaven. So he says, okay, so what do I have to do? to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty important question. And Jesus answers his question with a question. In other words, when he asked this question, Jesus, let me pause for a second and point out, Jesus knows the guy's heart. He knows that it says putting Jesus to a test, he asked this question. So what was his motive? His motive was to test and trap Jesus Christ. He's trying to ask Jesus a question that no matter how he answers it, there'll be some that agree with him, some that disagree with him, and he's trying to stir up controversy and opposition to Jesus. He's really not sincere in his question. It says, testing Jesus. He asked this question. Okay, Jesus, so what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus. Jesus always being smarter than I would be. Okay, Jesus answers the question with a question. He answers his question, refusing to give a direct answer, but Jesus says, well, okay. And again, Jesus, knowing this guy is, is an expert in the law, he says, so what is written in the law? How do you read it? <clears throat> You're the expert. You tell me. 
And it's kind of interesting that this guy gives a pretty good answer. Not exact, but yet pretty good. Here it is. Verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put him first. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus, again, kind of rolls with the guy. Because Jesus says, all right, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor just the way as, as you love yourself or want to be loved. And that fulfills the law. And by the way, elsewhere, Jesus will say with this exact verse that this verse captures the essence of the heart of God and of the heart of godliness, the heart of God and the heart of the law. In fact, in one other place, Jesus says that, that all of the law and the prophets can be summarized in this one command called the great command. Okay, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That captures and summarizes God's expectations for people. That's that, that is a summary of the entire law. So Jesus says, all right, you've answered well. Uh, just do this and you'll live. Now, as soon as he says what he's saying, he didn't say, say this and you'll live. He says, do this and you'll live. What Jesus is pointing out, by the way, is this. Having right answers don't make you righteous. You can know a lot of scripture. You can know a lot of answers. You can give all these correct theological uh, statements, but yet knowing the right answers doesn't make you righteous because we all sin. We all still sin. So this guy now, by the way, asks a second question of Jesus. He says, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Now, well, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's probably thinking, yeah, I kind of give that my best shot and love your neighbor as yourself. So now the trap is reversed. Now it says his motive is seeking to justify himself. In other words, he says, seeking to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So now the motive has changed. His first motive was trying to trap Jesus. Jesus is not being trapped. Tough to trap God, okay? Jesus is not trapped, but Jesus flips it on him where now he's realizing, hey, the pressure is on me. You know, because he, well, who's my neighbor? So, you know, so he, he's trying to, because he, he realizes no one loves God perfectly and no one loves their neighbor as themselves perfectly. And so he, he says, maybe if I get Jesus to define my neighbor, well, he's probably the people that live within, you know, within a rock's throw of where you live. People that live in your neighborhood, people that live in your town, people that are like you, you your friends. Those are your neighbors, right? When you use the word neighbor, you're normally thinking of the people from your neck of the woods, as I grew up saying in West Virginia. Okay, so that's the bottom line. He's asking Jesus, oh, well, but who's my neighbor? I mean, seriously. Little does he know that Jesus was setting him up. Now, I want to pause for a second and clarify something. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. Jesus wasn't showing him how it is possible to earn eternal life, but how it is utterly impossible to earn eternal life. It's very important that you catch this. 
Because if you just stop right here and, and the guy says, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you'll live. Jesus is not giving him or us the formula for earning eternal life. Now, we know that from the rest of Scripture. We know that from the rest of the story. We know that because Jesus often would set people up and he would tell them the demands of the law. You know, for example, let me give you another example. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about different sins. And he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, thou shalt not lust. You've heard it said, thou shalt, I mean, yeah, you shall not get angry, excuse me, or get angrily lustful. Either way, okay, yeah. Or thou shalt not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, thou shalt not lust. So the point is, Jesus is always showing that sin is an issue of the heart, not just the actions. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in essence, what I'm telling you is you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's not doable, right? Because what Jesus is doing when he gives those commands and, he, and, and here when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is helping this guy understand, whoa, I'm in trouble. Because even though this is what God wants us to do, it's not the way you're going to go to heaven. Jesus later on would say, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, says, look, there's two foundations. You either build your foundation on obeying the law and trying to be perfect, or you build your foundation on me as a Savior who dies on a cross for your sin, gives you eternal life as a gift. Those are the two paths you can take. The one leads to destruction, the other leads to life. The one foundation crumbles, the other one stands. So just to be crystal clear What he's doing is showing the man his own trouble, his own deep problem, because he's wanting them to know that, whoa, if this is what the law really teaches, it's not just about, you know, checking off the boxes that you don't commit certain sins, but if the law really is summarized by love God with all your heart and love other people as you love yourself, we're all in trouble because we all fail. Get that? So Jesus is humbling this guy. In fact, he loves to kind of what I call pop the bubble of self-righteousness of these religious leaders that think they're so good. And and Jesus has set him up to pop his self-righteous bubble. So then the story goes on. But wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, so who's my neighbor? And again, instead of answering, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. So this story we're about to read now, the heart of the passage, is answering that question. That if God wants us to love our neighbor as ourself, who's my neighbor? Great story. Here it goes. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. Now let's stop right there. You've got to picture this journey. The man is going down. Why does it say going down? Well, it's because Jerusalem was at about 2,500 feet above sea level, about 3,000 feet on certain parts of the city, depending on where you are. Jericho is actually the lowest city on the planet. You get that? Jericho, checked it this week, is about 1,385 feet, give a foot or two, below sea level. It's below sea level. 
It's, a, it's over a 4,000-foot drop in elevation over a 17-mile stretch. Now, sometimes I figured, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I could actually enhance the sermon by letting you see the road to Jericho? So I flew over to Israel this week and watched this. <laughs> so in the far distance is the small tower from Mount of Olives, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, followed this type of terrain. Now don't tell Ryan I did this. That was actually a year and a half ago, the last time I was in Israel. I didn't do it this week for integrity's sake. But yeah, I, I, I found myself literally halfway from Jerusalem to Jericho, and our tour guide pulled off to an overlook, and he said, by the way, if you look back to your left in the distance, that is the Mount of Olives. That's the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem on the, on the far horizon. And off to the distance in the right is the continuation of the road eventually down near the Dead Sea to the town of Jericho. I was literally filming the road to Jericho that we're talking about now. Now, why is that so important? Let me just show you a couple of pictures. The terrain is, is incredible, and, and it's very dry, if you haven't noticed, and you've got to have water if you're going to make this trip. Well, the only water is down in the bottom of that canyon. So the, the typical road to Jericho would follow that river canyon. And you, in fact, the next picture, I'll zoom in on it. And you'll see that's kind of what we're talking about. Now, as you look at that picture, now you can picture this man. And he makes this journey. And he's journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's going down through that rugged terrain. And, and everywhere you go, there are caves and there are crags and, and rocks and places for thieves to hide. And in fact, there was a nickname for this road in Jesus' time. And the nickname was the Bloody Way. The Bloody Way. Because this was one dangerous place to go. Now in the story, if you picture this, this is actually a, a monastery at the bottom of that uh, canyon. But it very much could have been where the inn was or the village that we're going to talk about because now we can understand the essence of how dangerous this journey was. And so he says this. He says, the man continued. Let me read it. So the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among robbers and they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down, to, going down on the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a, a Levite. A Levite was a person who was in charge of taking care of the, of the synagogue and the temple, and uh, the, he was another religious leader. The Levite came along, and, and when he came to the place and saw the man... He passed by on the other side. I'm not messing with this guy. But then a Samaritan, verse 33, a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him. Now, you've got to understand, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. In fact, if you picture the land of Israel, okay, you've got kind of Judah toward the middle of the country. You've got the, the area called Galilee where Jesus grew up and spent a lot of his time, right, to the north. And guess what? The most direct route from from, from Jerusalem, for example, to Jesus' hometown and area in Galilee was right through an area called Samaria. 
The Samaritans were like an offshoot of, of Judaism. The Samaritans didn't agree with the Jews on much of their doctrine and their thinking. For example, they only accepted the first five books of what we would call our Bible or the Pentateuch. So they, they, they didn't believe the same scriptures. They didn't say, believe the same beliefs. They were kind of considered ethnic half-breeds, and they didn't get along with the Jews. The Jews disliked the Samaritans so much that even though the direct route to Galilee went through Samaria, they would go way out of their way and go down to the River Jordan and north and cut back in to Galilee. They never wanted to even walk through Samaria, let alone talk to a Samaritan. So it's very significant that the man we're about to read about is a man of a different ethnic group, a different religious thinking. So he would be a person today, for example, you could almost contextualize this and say that a, a follower of Islam, in fact an ISIS member, was on a journey, okay? And he runs across a, uh, you know, he, he runs across a, a Jewish person who's been beat up and left for dead. You know, the, the, the bottom line is, these are people that do not get along. But yet, here's the surprise in the story. It says, but a Samaritan who was on the journey, he came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. And he put him on his own beast, his own horse or donkey, and he, and he brought him to an inn, maybe like the inn in that picture, and he took care of him. He stayed there. He personally cared for the guy. And then the next day, because he had to continue on, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, please take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, you've got to understand, two denarii is two one-day wages. So what would two denarii be uh, today? Just figure out what you make in a day. Okay, if you're, if you're closer to minimum wage, you know, maybe... You know, maybe it's around 100 bucks a day, or, or if you make a little bigger salary, it's probably 400 a day or 500 a day, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, he leaves him two denarii. So just picture somewhere like two, three, four hundred dollars. So he leaves him several hundred dollars and says, take care of this man. And, in fact, here's my visa card. Be sure and get all the numbers and the three-digit code and the name on the front of the card and my zip code. So anything you want, you call it in, Visa will cover it. I'm good for it. That's exactly what he did for caring for this man. He paid for his care. He covered his future care. And then he said, and I will return and check on him on my way back. Wow. Now then Jesus ends the story like this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. Who's the neighbor? And it's interesting that the man didn't even say, well, it's the Samaritan. I don't think he could use the word. He says, well, he says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do that. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself it means to love whenever you see a need that you have the ability to meet it's seeing a need that you have the ability to meet and it's being willing to sacrifice and lovingly 
care for that person. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, even if they're an enemy. So the challenge that Jesus gives is you go and do likewise and you'll be in great shape. <laughs> you got to hear Jesus chuckle. Yeah. You think you can do this? Do you really think you love your neighbor as yourself? I doubt it. I know every time I read this story, I think there's no way that I can really say, man, this is me. I do this. I got this covered. See, this man did not walk away thinking, well, I'm glad Jesus told me how to, how to get into heaven, how to have eternal life. What Jesus did was absolutely pop his lawyer bubble that any idea of keeping the law to earn your salvation just went out the window. Now, Jesus doesn't give us the rest of the story, but we learn it later in Scripture. So what Jesus is doing is popping self-righteousness. He's popping our tendency to think, you know, I think I'm good enough. Because we have a tendency in our culture to want to think that God judges on the curve. You know, God kind of is going to line us up, and if there's enough people to the left of us that are worse than us, if we're kind of further enough down the line, we're going to get in. But at some point, God's going to say, okay, you're bad enough, and he's going to draw the line. But the Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they were thrown out of the garden? One. Just one. Because God is perfectly holy and God cannot have sin in his presence without it being dealt with. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to die not just for most of our sins to make us a little bit better, but he died for all of our sin so that all of my sin has been paid for. So when I stand in the presence of God, if I put my faith in Christ, I know that I'm forgiven completely. But Jesus told this story first to take away any chance of any of us thinking we can work our way into heaven. Now, I've never heard the Good Samaritan story used to teach that. But in reality, that was the main thing Jesus wanted you and I to know, is that, yes, this is the essence of God's heart and God's law. Love him completely. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the essence of how God wants us to live. But guess what? None of us can do that. And, of course, Scripture is going to tell us how, with His Spirit and His Word, we can actually grow to be more like Christ and do this. But you're never going to be good enough. That's the bottom line. So what do we learn? Let me, let me break it down this way. I think I call this wisdom for life. And in the outline, I add two words, both eternal and now. Eternal and now. In other words, what's it teach us first about this question of eternal life? What he shows us is right answers never make you right. The law does not make you right. The law shows us the heart of God. It shows us the heart of godliness. But the law is mainly there to show us our desperate need for someone to pay the penalty for our sins. In fact, it's declared that way in Galatians 3.24. Here it is on the screen. It says, therefore, the law has become our tutor our teacher, our mentor, our coach, okay, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Not by keeping the law, but by faith in Christ. So the law is there to hold it up like a mirror 
not so much to cause us to say, wow, okay, yeah, I look pretty good. Now, if you really understand the law is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, you hold that up and we all fail. We all say, God help me. So it's designed to lead us to our need to place our faith in Christ and come to him. The law will never get us there. But the second thing that this story does is, man, it it tells us how we are to live when you come to know Christ. How does he really want us to live? What's most important? Or how shall I now live once I've come to faith in Christ? This is a great illustration of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to make a few observations on that second part of it. Number one is what I call the Great Commandment 1.0, and that is this, that loving other people has to be fueled by my growing love for Christ. In other words, what fuels my ability, I love that phrase, that's uh, Matt Carlson. Matt, are you in here or are you in next service? Okay, anyway, you know, the funny guy with the shorts. He'll be back, he'll be back. I love Matt's observation. Matt said, Dale, this is, it's the love that we have for Christ in response to the grace of God, undeserved grace of God, that fuels my motivation and my ability to love other people. And that's so true. It's what fuels my love for other people is fueled by first my love for God. If my love for God goes weak, my love for people dries up. That's the bottom line. But then secondly, this is a great story of what I call the Great Commandment 2.0 because the Great Commandment is one commandment with two parts. Every time Jesus quotes it, he gives both parts. He says, yeah, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second part of the Great Commandment. And, And the two are inseparable. So what do we learn about how to love people? What do we learn from the Good Samaritan about how to love people? Now, I knew that I'd be a little short on time, so sometimes I like to give you the answers straight up, okay? Let me, let me, I, and I even put them in a gray box on your outline, right? Is that, is that a gray box? Yeah, there it is. So please cut the gray box out, put it in the back of your Bible or something. But here it is. If you look at the Good Samaritan as an example for how Jesus wants us to live, number one, let me just walk you through them real quick. Number one, you've got to be aware. Love notices people. Love is aware when others look the other way. When others look the other way, love is aware of other people. If we just wake up and see the people around us and see their needs that's where it starts number two love cares the phrase he uses is it felt compassion for the man even if feeling skeptical ambivalent or occasionally ripped off by people you say well i'm not going to help that person he'll just take advantage of me yeah this man felt compassion he kind of has a heart you know, Jesus wants us to, to develop a soft heart for people where we actually care about people. That's called compassion. But it goes beyond that. This guy acted, love acts, putting the love of Christ visibly on display. There's the saying that you grow up with that says, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. You can say, oh, yeah, I, I just love people. 
I, I love uh, people overseas. I love orphans. I love children that need homes. I love, I love, but yet we don't put it into action. So love is aware, it cares, it acts. Not only does it act, it serves. It's willing to get what I call <laughs> dirty and messy like Jesus. He acted. He had to deal with a man that was so bloodied up that he was a mess. He was on the verge of dying. So, you know, and he, and he cared for the man. And he tried to clean him up and he put him on his own horse and he got blood all over the place and he takes him to the inn and he himself cleans his wounds and takes care of him. You know, he, he, he became a servant. He says, how can I serve you? Love acts, love serves, love gives, practicing sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity. This guy laid his, put his money where his mouth was. This guy was willing to sacrifice some of his hard-earned money to care for a stranger from another ethnic group that he didn't even like. That's, that's pretty impressive. And then finally, love loves the hard to love. Love loves the hard to love, expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return. Now, if you just look at those phrases in the box, I want to use, use our last few minutes just to mention, how, how do we put this into practice in our lives today? Because I think one of the mistakes people make is to think that Jesus told this story so that when we see people broken down on the side of the road, we will stop and help them. Now, that does kind of fall into this category, all right? Helping people in distress falls into this category. Helping the poor falls into this category. No doubt about it. But I think we really limit the application unfairly when we think that way. Because this whole story started with what? What does God want of us? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then out of that love for God, we love our neighbors as ourselves. And then Jesus defines neighbor as anyone whose need we see, whose need we're able to meet. I'll say that again. Anyone whose need we see, whose need we're able to meet. It's easy, though, to think, okay, next time I see a guy that's been mugged, I'll be a good Samaritan. No, 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 no. It's loving your neighbor as yourself was the main command. It needs to be applied way beyond that. A couple good opportunities, by the way. Seacoast annually does an emphasis on hosting international students who come here to study, especially at UCSD and... Uh, and they come from other countries. They don't know anybody. They don't know how to get their cell phone checked out. They don't know this or that. The bottom line is we have a program where you, you give three days to help an international student. Now, I know right now, if you want to write this name down, George Hahn, H-A-H-N. George Hahn is heading up this thing. It's a great opportunity. Uh, if you write that down, if you email me the church and say, hey, I'm interested in helping an international student settle in for two or three days, then do that. It's a great way to love a stranger in the name of Christ. It often leads to great conversations. But, you know, I, I also think back in my own life, I thought, you know, where have I done this well and where have I really messed up? I'll tell you a story real quick. When I was younger, my wife and I were uh, running a camp for high school students. Camp was on an island in Tennessee, um, where it's hot, you get big thunderstorms in Tennessee, especially in July. And all of a sudden, we're running this camp. The, 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 we got about 50 high school students staying in tents. And I mean, one of this horrendous 
high wind, high velocity, rain so hard you can hardly see, uh, you know, 20, 30 feet out. I mean, it's blinding rain comes. And it's in the evening, and, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, I'm the camp director. So what do I do? Man, I go into my Good Samaritan action. I'm running around the camp. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, helping, I'm helping these guys and girls, you know, rescuing them. Some of them are literally in tents that had blown in on them. And, and they were being pelted with rain. And I get out there and I get messy and dirty and muddy and I'm putting up tents and I'm, I'm the hero. I'm helping all these girls, okay? Well, later that evening, I'm, I'm the good Samaritan. So I come back to my own tent. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling, and by the way, my wife is with me helping run the tent. And by the way, we have three preschool children at the time. Picture three preschool children at the time living in a tent on an island Get the picture? Yeah. So I come and I find, and my wife is literally having to hold up the roof of our tent because it's got this big pool of water. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was just, a, you know, the bottom line is she's there, the kids are screaming, and, and the conversation went something like this. You think you're such a good leader. You're out helping all these little girls put up their tent while I'm stuck in this tent trying to keep our own tent from falling in on our three little kids. You know something? You can run this camp by yourself. I'm leaving in the morning. Yeah. Good Samaritan. Here's the rule. Good Samaritans need to first check with their wives. See, I, I'd love to hear the rest of this story. You know, the good Samaritan shows up at home, and uh, he's back in Samaria, and he tells his wife all that he did for this stranger. And she's been home while he's on his journey for about two weeks with three preschool kids. What do you think the wife says? She says, you know something? I wish you'd bring a little of that Samaritan home here. When was the last time you helped me cook dinner? When was the last time you helped me deal with the kids while you're running off being the hero of some Bible story? Okay, she didn't know that, but let's pretend she did. You know, here I am at home. In other words, the Good Samaritan principle, love your neighbor as yourself. Love people as yourself. And begin, if, if, if you can't love a stranger, can you at least love your best friend if you're single or your spouse? That's the question. Can we start at home? Because when I realize that, I look at this list, I look at the list, I look at the gray box list, and I realize, you know, this is the secret to having a great marriage if you're married or if you want to be someday. This is a great secret to being, a, being an incredible friend who has good, healthy friendships. Is The bottom line is when I'm when I'm around people, beginning at home, extending to strangers mugged in an alley. doesn't matter where I am. Am I aware? Do I notice when my wife is hurting? Do I notice when my kids are hurting? When my parents are hurting? Do I notice? Do I, do I care? Or do I think, you know, it's not my problem? Do I care? Do I act? Do I serve? Am I willing to sacrificially give? And do I even do it for those that are unlovely, hard to love? This is a formula for life, not just rescuing those along the highway. 
Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for what you taught us here. Thank you so much for the lessons that Jesus Christ gives us. About, first of all, that eternal life, none of us are good enough. Thank you for humbling us again and reminding us of our desperate need for a Savior. Today we reaffirm and say, Lord Jesus, our trust is in you. Only you can provide life eternal. But Father, as followers of Christ who have trusted him, man, help us to open our eyes and to see people, see their need. And as you give us opportunity, help us be uh, the good Samaritan in their life. That's my prayer, that we might just populate this North County coastal area with people imitating Jesus. We ask you to empower us by your spirit to do that in Christ's name. Amen.